0: Jokes are something I think about all the time. They're a volatile type of speech. I mean, you just look at the news, the Charlie Hebdo incident two years ago where these 10 satirists were killed for drawing a disrespectful cartoon of Muhammad who the killers believed to be the prophet of Allah, their Lord and Savior, which, by the way, he might be. (laughs)
1: guest for this episode is a delightful storyteller, a skilled comedian. But we're the show we are, and I want to make sure you notice a consistent darkness, a bleakness almost, in his work. I want you to notice it because it's the premise of this podcast, that laughter and depression can exist together, but also because he uses the darkness as a tool in his work. He harnesses that power, yokes up the darkness, makes it pull a plow. It's the Hilarious World of Depression. I'm John Moe. I'm
0: uh, Mike Burbiglia, and we are in a studio in New York City on the east
1: side of Manhattan. And what do you do for a living, Mike? Um, it's so complicated. <laughs> That's why I ask. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I would say uh, primarily uh, I create things
1: and perform things. Mike Berbiglia is a filmmaker and a monologuist. His live solo shows, which have played on Broadway and toured the country, are a mix of stand up comedy and storytelling. And he tackles big issues health and sleep, love and commitment, parenthood. He's got one coming up about death. I soaked up a ton of his stuff going into my interview with Mike. And through these hours of material, something kept coming up. This is from his special, The New One. I couldn't
0: believe it, 39 years old, diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. He said, is there anything in your diet that might be spiking your blood sugar? I said, sometimes I eat pizza until I'm unconscious. He said, I think that might be it. So I had Lyme disease, diabetes, generally devoid of joy. I really am, I try. Like I was listening to this TED talk about how to find joy in your life. And the host said, one thing everyone enjoys is confetti. (laughs) And I thought, oh no, I hate confetti. To me, (laughs) confetti is just garbage that we throw into the air. It's like cancer, life-threatening sleep disorder, Lyme disease,
1: diabetes. I dislike joy." A lack of capacity to feel joy gets brought up multiple times in Mike's work. But Mike Barbiglia doesn't really elaborate on it much, just moves on to a new topic. It's the kind of thing that if a friend did that, you'd worry. This is in another special, My Girlfriend's Boyfriend. I'm never going to be
0: happy. Why would anyone want to be a part of that? I think that's not brought up often enough. (laughs) No, that would be the reaction. (laughs) Oh, no, that's the hopeful part.
1: (laughs) Mike Birbiglia's interest in comedy started in middle school. My brother Joe
0: uh, is uh, five years older than me. So Joe was a senior in high school, and he was the editor of his student newspaper. And he decided he was going to write sort of a satire issue or a few satire issues of his newspaper and i was for lack of a better term like a sounding board for his ideas because we shared a bedroom and that's when it uh the the bug bit me for for comedy i was just like oh this is this is amazing
1: what was so amazing about it
0: this this idea of that instead of writing the thing you're supposed to write you write the opposite of what you're supposed to write, mm. or you write what you're supposed to write, but that has a right turn at the end, and that just seemed uh, thrilling. And I immediately was like, "Well, I just want to do this." So then, when I went to high school, I think as early as you know my sophomore year in high school, I would do you know one or two, if not three or four issues of of a satire issue of the newspaper per year that's all I wanted to do, yeah. was write satire. You didn't want to do the actual newspaper. No, no. But then to the point where I um, I considered myself, by the time I got to, as, to be a senior, I applied to Harvard because I wanted to be on the Lampoon. Of course, I was rejected from Harvard. They had no interest in me. I was not qualified to go there at all. In my mind, I was so delusional that they would want me Mm. Because I was one of the best high school satire writers in America. Of course, there's no metric for that. (laughs) That may or might not be true.
1: (laughs) There are very few rankings available. Yeah,
0: yeah. And and also, this is the 90s. This is like long before the comedy boom that we're living in right now. So it's like I literally showed up to my Harvard interview, and I brought all these satire issues of the newspaper, and I said, here they are. This woman's a lawyer, a distinguished person. She goes, Okay, like, clearly she's never going to read these papers. Yeah. Never. Doesn't even look down at them on the table. No. And then she says, is there any other reason you want to go to Harvard? And I said, no. (laughs) Because I said, I want to write for the Lampoon. And she goes, any other reason? I go, no. Mm -mm. And I didn't realize that they don't care.
1: Mike went to Georgetown in Washington, D.C. instead. In college, he worked the door at a Virginia comedy club, eventually hosting shows there, learning stand-up. After college, he was a road comic for several years. In 2005, Mike told a story on stage that would change his life. He told a festival crowd that when he was on a tour of Western colleges, one night he ran through a second-story hotel window while asleep. And after that, he diverged from regular stand-up in his act, and his writing went a lot deeper, got a lot more vulnerable, and he created a one-man show, book, and movie called Sleepwalk With Me about that incident at the hotel. That story, by Mike, of his lowest point, brought him widespread fame and acclaim. Describe what REM sleep behavior disorder is.
0: REM sleep behavior disorder is um, occurs when people have a dopamine deficiency. It's a chemical that's released from your brain into your body when you go to sleep that paralyzes your body so that you don't do what's in your brain, so you don't act out your dreams. People who have what I have often act out their dreams. And so in my case, and this is covered in Sleepwalk With Me, the movie, which I, gosh, I, you can rent in a lot of different digital spaces right now, but I don't think it's free. Um, I wrote a book about it. Oh, you know what's free? <laughs> it's always like, what's free? <laughs> so people can go and find it for free. You know where it's free is the audio of the show version is on Spotify for free. Yes. So there you go. Yeah. Um. And, uh, yeah, I jumped through a second-story window in in Walla Walla, Washington, in, at, at a La Quinta Inn or a La Quinta Inn, and that's when I knew I had to go to see a doctor. For years before that, I thought, maybe I should see a doctor, and then I thought, maybe I'll eat dinner,
1: and I went with dinner <laughs> for, for years. I I've always— I, I don't know if I had a grudge against you when—, when
0: <laughs> Because I jumped through a
1: window? It's because, too good, it's too good it of an example. it sounds so awesome. Well, I went to college in Walla Walla, Washington. Oh, my gosh. Whitman? Whitman College. That's where I performed that night. Yeah. And and I always thought, you know, I've fallen down and done dumb things in Walla Walla a hundred times. Why don't I have a career as a monologuist? That's hilarious. It's not so fair. Are you from there? I'm from the you, Seattle
0: area. Oh, okay. And then you went to college in Walla Walla. Yeah. And do you know, this is a bizarre factoid and coincidence— the father of sleep medicine is, is Dr. William C. DeMent at Stanford. He's from Walla Walla. Is he? Isn't And And then, and then um, there is a very prominent sleep center in Minnesota. Oh, okay. You should know that. University of Minnesota has perhaps, between Stanford and, and Minnesota, I think those are the two most prominent sleep centers in America.
1: Wow. It's yeah. amazing. I've been so close to so many of them, and I've been, had such insomnia for so long. Do you long. have insomnia? Oh, yeah. It's horrible.
0: Yeah, no kidding. runs
1: in the family. But um, do you try anything? Do you try tricks, uh, meditation? I've, I've tried like tricks. I've tried meditation, and and it'll come and go. It's it's in a pretty good place now, but it'll go. It'll go for you know. It'll come roaring back, and then just be awful for a while. The the thing
0: I recommend for because I've had insomnia before too. Yeah, the thing I recommend for people always is, and this is Doctor William Dement's book is called The Promise of Sleep, and I couldn't recommend it more. He wrote it years and years ago, but it's, like, very user-friendly, very readable. But I would say, like, a big thing with insomnia is um, a, a slow ramp into sleep. Mm. So, so, in other words, like, as you're going through your evening, turning off lights, uh, uh, turning off the TV, yeah. turning off your computer, turning off your phone, those things are all stimuli uh akin to drinking caffeine you might you might as well be drinking coffee all night on the screen says to your brain it's
1: daylight it's that's right so you should get up yeah which doesn't
0: but but i but but i always describe like what i used to do as just crashing into sleep Mm. and you you don't want to crash into sleep you want to park park sleep
1: (laughs) 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 it's a it's a chilly pool before you go swimming you've got to exactly got to wade in I was kind of touched by Mike Barbiglia's concern for my sleep in our conversation. Part of his concern came from his interest in sleep medicine, but also there's empathy for people who have been in tough situations similar to his. And that brings us back to that dark undercurrent.
0: I'm not diagnosed as a depressive, uh, but I always relate to people who are. Hmm. Uh, In other words, like when I was on tour with... um, Uh, A bunch of years ago, Chris Gethard uh, opened for me on the Thank God
1: for Jokes tour. Chris Gethard is a comedian and actor. He's been on our podcast before. Chris created a one-man show about his depression and his attempted suicide called Career Suicide.
0: So we spent like a lot of time on a tour bus together. In in some ways, I helped him find Career Suicide, his show uh, about being depressive and suicidal. And in some ways he helped me found, find my movie, Don't Think Twice, which is about improvisers. Mm-hmm. And the reason that we sort of, we spent literally so many hours on a bus together that I've, it's one of those things where eventually on a car ride, everything comes out. Yeah. You know that thing? Yep. And and it's like, because there's nowhere to go. So one night I was on the bus with Gethard and he told he tells me his story about, about uh, attempting to commit suicide, and I just go, "That's what your whole show should be about." And he and he goes, "Yeah, that I don't think that'll anyone will laugh at that." <laughs> and I go, "No, no, no." That if I go, I mean, and this is my this goes to my overall theory on comedy is if you can take the darkest, saddest, uh, deepest thing that you experience um, and make that funny, which is challenging. That's sometimes I I, I want to make sure I don't leave that out. If you're able to do that, I think that you've got the best comedy on your hands. Mm. And that's why I said to Chris, "I like, go if you can make that story funny, then you're, you're golden. People are going to love to hear that. Yeah. Because it's going to be not only make them laugh, but it's going to give them a sense of comfort and connection.
1: Something that I've noticed about uh, your, your shows, your one-person shows, is that there's often um, a mention of – a lack of joy in your life. There's, <laughs> sure. There's a, there's a, but you don't often explore it sure. at, at great That's length. Right. That's right. Y- you drop it in like, oh, and then I've, I've barely ever been able to feel joy. But yeah. then this other thing happened. I'm like, wait, wait. A second. Sure. I'm, sure, sure. I'm yelling at the, at the screen. But you say you've never been diagnosed as depressive, but it sounds like you've got this persistent darkness. That is both present and also important enough to you that you mention it. It's funny many you should times. say that
0: because the sh- the new show that I'm writing right now, which is, and I, I, it's important that I say tentatively titled because it's not officially titled, is called the YMCA Pool. And it's and it, I, I always say the new one. My last show um, is about birth, and this show is about death, mm. and it, and it's all about how much I think about death mm. and how, especially in middle age, how I start. I'm I'm seeing natural causes for the first time. As a real thing, and not just this thing far in the distance or a hypothetical. It's like, oh no, there's natural. You know, you the the phrase for middle age is over the hill. Yeah, and I never understood that term until I got on the hill and I looked around and I go, oh, there's natural causes. They're not close, but they're coming. Yeah, and and um, and I think that when you talk when when I talk about myself, my own mental health and the the joy thing that you're uh, alluding to is, I think that at a certain point, and I think it was probably. Maybe somewhere in high school, college, or my early twenties, I had this uh, uh, understanding of of my own existential dread. Uh, just this idea of like, well, there's you know, you know, there's not much we can do. Yeah. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna die. It's gonna be either instantaneous and soon, or it's gonna be in forty, fifty horrible. years yeah. from now, and they'll uh, have some decline to it. And um, and I feel like I—that's something I—you I, know—I I feel like I can't get that out of my head. I think it's part of what makes me a comedian, mm-hmm. uh, because I think about that, and I think that part of the part of the job of a certain type of comedian is, like, like what the kind of stuff I do is—is is to take the darkness and, and 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 break it open and find the humor in it, mm-hmm. so that people themselves can see the humor in it. Uh, because I think laughter is a great coping mechanism for uh, a lot of darkness that that surrounds us
1: at all times. What do you do after you do a show about death? <laughs> I think you die. <laughs> yeah, the other <laughs> ones were like, I dread marriage. Then you get married. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dread- yeah, 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 yeah. I
0: think you die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the jokes that, that may or may not make it into the show right now is they go, as you get older, your physicals become more involved. Your annual physical becomes your semi annual, becomes your quarterly, and then your doctor becomes your roommate, and then
1: you die. <laughs> and then you have to go. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, is this then, you, you talked about uh, Chris Gethard's incident where his attempt um as being oh this is like the most horrible thing and you need to get laughs out of it is that what you're doing now with yeah it's
0: the same thing i mean it's the same thing as the same thing with sleepwalk with me that's what sleepwalk with me was the most uh jumping jumping through the second story window at in at la quinta in walla walla washington was the worst thing that ever happened in my life Mm -hmm. um and so it was it was learning to to take that and uh and 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 also talking about how I had cancer when I was nineteen, I had a bladder tumor, and that's in Sleepwalk with Me. Also, that's alluded to in Sleepwalk with Me. Also, um, it's finding the humor in that. That I think, for me, and, and this podcast is an example of this too. It's like there therein lies the service that that is possible with comedy, mm-hmm. which is to to say, well, comedy definitely. Should have some laughs in it, Um, but can it do more than that? Yeah, you know. And then it's like, could it be laughs and also have help people arrive at a catharsis? Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's all my shows: Sleepwalk with Me, My Girlfriend's Boyfriend, Thank God for Jokes, uh, the new one, and now the YMCA Pool. It's like that. That's always the goal: is is to make people laugh, but then hopefully lead to some or help lead to some kind of catharsis.
1: You don't hear the word depression a lot in what Mike says, because that's not how he describes it, whatever it is. Whether he's feeling the same things you might feel or I might feel, the thing we would call depression, I don't know, but I don't think it matters all that much. What's universal is people carrying around that darkness and then deciding what to do with it. Like taking your life experience and turning it into all these performances so many of them are about having to face the thing you dread. That's right. It's so true. You know, it's it's facing uh, marriage and the commitment that yep. goes with that. It's yep. making another human being that yeah. you're going to raise. And there's never – what I love about them is that it's never you saying, and then I realized I was wrong the whole time. And this is wonderful. <laughs> it's It's generally you saying – I'm still just as freaked out, but I have to just walk into this thing anyway. Yeah, that's important
0: for me, and I, I, that that has to do with just my taste in movies and plays and things that I like in general. Is that if for me, if something takes too glossy of a turn at the end, mm-hmm. I don't believe what happened at the beginning. You don't trust it. I don't trust it. Yeah. So I feel like you have to tell people the truth uh, in order to earn their trust to say things are incrementally better Uh if you look at it through this lens. Um, There's like a famous Obama quote from, you know, a bunch of years ago where he talks about progress is more like a a, a ship or like a tanker that's slowly moving Mm -hmm. in the right direction. It's
1: not not taking right turns. Mike talks about his lack of joy, his dark streak, his deep-seated hopelessness. A lot of people may call that melancholy or depression. Mike doesn't. Winston Churchill called it the black dog. There are all sorts of different names. But why not talk about that feeling or condition directly? I think I've never fully understood
0: uh, uh, what it is, and so it's very hard for me to identify what it is. I mean, we we can only see the world through our own experience. And so, we don't know what other people's experience is exactly, and and so, and so when I say I, I, I don't, you know, uh, I'm unable unable to experience joy. In some ways, that's sort of a stab in the dark of describing what I'm feeling, and so I don't. I mean, I do. I, I will say, like. It's it's in the book. Like there's a, there's a description of like what it feels like for me to wake up in the morning, and I'm on clonopin from the sleep. I take sleep clonopin sleep, for sleepwalking, and so I have this like weird clonopin hangover, and I I'm I, I I'm I'm sort of like a rag doll on on like three percent battery power, kind of making my way across the room to put coffee on, and and then I, I guzzle coffee, which is the liquid false promise that joy is on the way. And, and, and I, yeah, I mean, I definitely dig into it harder. I mean, I think a lot of my uh, inability to experience joy is 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 anxiety about uh, 10 steps ahead. What's tomorrow? What's next week? What's next month? What's what's in a year? What's in five years? And the sort of domino effect
1: of that. And are you worst casing all those things? Always, always. In Mike's stories about his life, he is a deeply flawed hero. He has times where he's selfish and insensitive, unlikable, and he owns that. Probably the
0: most challenging thing as a monologuist or an autobiographical author is that you have to admit things about yourself that are not... uh, Flattering. They're not flattering, they're not positive, uh, but I think that that's the gift that you're giving the audience. You know, like it's in in the new one. I the thing that was always hardest to say on stage is, you know, when I was in my 20s, I went to the red light district and went, to, you know, in Amsterdam, went to a prostitute and all this stuff. and 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 like when I was in this relationship where it seemed like we were going to get married, I ended up uh, cheating on my ex girlfriend and and all these things where it's like, oh, it's so painful to tell these stories, but. It's um, I think it's essential to admit uh, your flaws as a human being for the audience to experience the catharsis of um, we have we have flaws too and mm-hmm. and 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 that, and that that that's okay. I mean so much of my comedy is correlated to uh, being raised Catholic in Massachusetts where where everything w- was so repressed in the sense of like, you're really discouraged (laughs) from saying sort of how you feel about things in an honest way. And I mean, people might dispute me on that, but that was my experience of it. And I think that my personality was such that I would just sort of blurt things out. And when I saw that there was laughter in that, I I sort of leaned into what that laughter was. You know, I have a joke about how I was an altar boy as a kid, and the answer is no, I wasn't. And I think it's because they knew I was a talker. I have that look about me. I, it, it, I, sometimes I'll have people like one time I had a guy in Boston shout like, "Haven't we heard that enough?" Like I have hecklers for that occasionally, and it's and I feel like saying, "No, we haven't. I mean, we haven't heard it enough. Like like this is this is, this has been going on for centuries, yeah. and it might be and it's probably still going on now and. We're going to keep talking about it, and if it means we, we tell it in the form of jokes to keep it in the conversation, then that's what we'll do.
1: You're a very funny comedian. You could probably do, you know, just specials that are, that are full of jokes and, and be on your way. Uh, what compels you to go to some of these other places where you know there are, there are laughs in it, but there's something more that you're trying to do? It just has to do with
0: taste and, like, what you like seeing and, and then as a result what you like making. So, like, so like for me, um, I've always liked movies and shows and plays that where you feel like uh, you're laughing, you're crying, you're experiencing this range of emotions, and then you think about it for a few weeks or a few months or, or for years. And once I was bit by the bug of, of that, I feel like I can't let that go. Mm. Like, there's there's something about it. It's like, it's like, yeah, I could do an hour of stand-up, but what if the hour of stand-up also achieved this other thing? Where with Girlfriend's Boyfriend, uh, you know, and it ends with the phrase, like, I've given up on the idea of being right. And I get, like, countless emails from people who go, like, that special helped me let go of, you know— this lawsuit that I had for years that you know where uh, you know w- you know that I was dragging down my life in all these different ways because I knew I was right and all this kind of stuff and for me like that's what makes it uh, your as a comedian that's what can make your job a service but making people laugh is a service too mm-hmm. but but I think that what I have to offer there was a I remember reading something a few years ago where it's like. It's like, don't think about what you want to be when you grow up. Think about what you have to contribute. Mm. And I think I at a certain when I was younger, I used to think I want to be a comedian. I want to be a filmmaker.
1: And now it's like, well, what do I have to contribute? Is it a way of you trying to figure out a thing? Is it a way of you trying to cope with maybe a, a dread or a darkness that you need to wrestle with? Or is it how can I please the audience? Oh no, no. No, yeah,
0: no. It's the it's the first one for sure. Like so the new one was something that I almost—I I was writing in my journal. And by, by the way, if people—I imagine there's a, depra- there's a depressive uh, uh, contingent of listeners to the show. Oh, yes. Is that, is that, is that safe to say? Oh, yes. <laughs> so in my experience, I don't know if it's depression specifically that I'm experiencing, but when I'm down, when I'm feeling down, when I'm feeling sort of cornered by my life or, or boxed in— and 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 confounded by by my own uh, obstacles, I write in a journal, and usually it's at the end of my day, and I'll write out all of my gripes and frustrations, and often, often I'll get to the end of the end the, the journal entry, and I'll actually feel better than I did at the beginning, mm-hmm. and that's astonishing. Yeah, just as an exercise, that's astonishing, and then more often than not. I'll read back because I have, like, you know, hundreds of these things, these notebooks piled up. But more often than not, I'll, I'll read back something I wrote a year ago, six months ago, you know, a few years ago. And that will make me feel better. Mm-hmm. That will make me feel comforted because I can see the pattern in my own behavior. Like, oh, yeah, that was the phase of, of that experience where I was, you know, feeling like you know, no one was – Joining my team in terms of uh, making this project, and I was all alone, and I was isolated, and I was the only person, you know, working hard on this thing, and I, I felt unsupported. I go, oh yeah, and then you start to go, oh yeah, that always
1: happens. Well, and, and often you get from the audience, you get that laugh of, oh, I'm not alone. Oh, somebody else is thinking. Absolutely. This. Yeah. I mean, I, that's one of the that's one of the most powerful things about
0: live comedy performance is this weird thing of like you say something on stage. And and in the laughter tells you a, a group of people laughing at the same time makes you go, oh my god! A lot of people
1: have been thinking about this in their subconscious, at least. Like that is astonishing. And you never know what the thing is that they're going to respond to the most. I imagine well, the
0: first joke I ever told on stage that it was personal and worked. And this is this is in Sleepwalk with Me, the movie. I go, I um. I don't want to get married until I'm sure that nothing else good can happen in my life, and and that was one of the first times I I said that on stage when I was in college when I was when I was like 20 years old and and it, and it killed and mm-hmm. I was like I didn't even say it as a joke I sort of said it as like maybe this will be a setup for another joke for an
1: actual joke yeah yeah
0: and it's like no it's just a truism. Or, or at least a felt truism, a truism for me, and, but a lot of people connected with that. Yeah. That idea of like marriage or having children is sort of the end of anything sort of good
1: or exciting happening in, in your life. It's a bold proposition, this idea of spotting the darkness or depression or whatever noun you use, and then using it to make an entertaining experience for your audience. Like, here's a time when I was most unlikable. Here's my darkness. Here's my lack of capacity for joy. Want to buy a ticket to hear me tell you about it in a theater? And not everyone wants to buy that ticket. That's in a moment. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illnesses. Not just depression, all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having some laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression. It's a way of maybe demystifying depression a bit, make it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. It's serious. The good news is that people can and do recover. They get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. That can be an awkward conversation, of course. But makeitokay.org is full of information you can use, like what to say, what not to say, and stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org where you can take the pledge to make it okay. Thank you so much to health partners and to make it okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. Back with Mike Berbiglia, Mike has acted in movies and TV. He was a gossip reporter in the movie Pop Star, Never Stop, Never Stopping. He was in Orange is the New Black, the Annie remake. But his own shows are just him as himself, alone, which makes things awfully direct when there's criticism. This is from his show entitled The New One.
0: And I say delusion in a very affectionate way. I mean, delusion is a huge part of my life. If it weren't for delusion, I wouldn't have become a comedian at all, because particularly starting out, you know, there's so much failure and amidst that failure, you have to tell yourself it's going quite nicely. (laughs) Because if you didn't, you'd never get on stage again. You'd just be like, I guess human beings don't like me. Because with stand-up comedy, it's not like a play or a movie where people don't like it. They can go, "Wow, well, we didn't like the set or the script or the costumes. With stand-up comedy, if people don't like it, they're basically saying, we don't like you. <laughs> you know, your personality. <laughs> Certainly, like, there's, there's pushback um, when you, when you uh, do dramatic work within the genre of comedy. So, like, does people the, get confused? The most prime example of this was Hannah Gadsby, because it was her her special was exponentially more widely viewed than anything I've ever done. I mean, it, it, Hannah's show was
1: I would I, I mean I'd venture to say like an international phenomenon. Hannah Gadsby is an Australian writer and performer. Her special Nanette is about homophobia, misogyny, and about comedy. She uses self-deprecation and then turns and attacks the idea that self-deprecation and self-hatred belong as comedy institutions. Mike is a man. He's straight. But as a proponent of ambivalent comedy that goes after the dark stuff, he was a big fan of Hannah Gadsby. I saw it
0: live in New York at the Soho Theater, which is a little space. And it was bef- it was like a year before came on, you know, it had a deal for at Netflix all this stuff, and I liked it so much that I bought ten tickets for comedian younger comedian friends who I thought should tell stories on stage. Jacqueline Novak, who I went on to produce her her solo show, um, Chris Laker and uh, uh, Sam J and, and Gary Richardson, like a bunch of comedians. I was like, you guys got to see this show. Uh, this what she's doing is astonishing. And um, there was an extraordinary amount of pushback at her. Yeah, um, her personally. Yeah, and even from comedians, comedians who I respect. There's like Norm MacDonald going like, ah, it's not comedy. Ah. It's just like, well, yeah. I mean, it, apparently it's not your type of comedy. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but, but for you to put parameters on, on what comedy is and can be is seemingly so close-minded and, mm-hmm. and just narrow-minded and, and, and very ignorant. Like, anti-art. <clears throat> very anti-art. And it, you know what's funny? Anti-art is a good way to put it because it's, it's anti um, the possibility that comedy could be transcendent. Hmm, and can be more than just set a punch, set a punch, set a punch. Thank you. Good night. Right. That that she created something larger than that, okay. and yes, yeah, she gets that. I get pushback. Um, I sometimes get pushback um, <clears throat> on behalf of her fans, which is bizarre. You know, they'll go like. You know, like people are complaining about Hannah Gatsby. No one complains when it's Mike Birbiglia. It's like, yeah,
1: they do. Yeah, sure, <laughs> yeah, they do. They do. <laughs> well, you you have a bit in one of your in one of your shows about how ultimately in comedy people are saying it's not. They're not saying I don't like that movie or I don't like that book. They're saying I, I don't like, like you. I don't like
0: you. Yeah, yeah. it's painful, I and mean, there's no way around the fact that it's painful. I think it's it's harder in some ways for my wife because she's an introvert and she's a poet. Mm. She never really wanted to be public. Like part of the thing in this book is like, I was like, we should, you know, we should take your poems and interlace them through the book. And so it's like this experience of your perspective, my perspective, a poetry perspective, a comedy perspective. And it really, you know, it worked out great, like which is which is thrilling. Um, but I think like she, do, I mean, I think I think that's hard for her to see. People come after me because she loves me. And I think, but because partly it's us. It's me being like me and my wife and my daughter yeah. and people being like, that's boring. The world <laughs> is, Why is are you coming into comedy? your comedy Yeah.
1: It's notable to me that Mike took that question about how criticism becomes personal and changed the subject to how it affects his wife. Mike and his wife, the poet Jennifer Hope Stein, collaborated on a book called The New One, adapted from Mike's show of the same name. It's due out this summer. You have to feel it, but how do you how do you protect against it? Like what barriers? what what boundaries do you set up for yourself to protect yourself?
0: That's why I'm here today. <laughs> I, we need to come up with some.
1: <laughs> well,
0: <laughs> it does help. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I mean, i I'm proud of what I do. Uh, I'm proud of the shows. My friend John Mulaney was on a Colbert show recently. and Colbert asked him kind of a similar question, which is sort of like, like, how do you, how do you deal with criticism and things like that? And, and, and John, um, was saying, you know, like, uh, yeah, a lot of, he's like, I think a lot of my instinct to be a comedian was like to be liked as a kid. Like I tell it be funny and people liked me. And so that's, you know, that, that was part of it. And, and, and John sort of posed the the question back to Stephen Colbert like, how, how do you deal with that? And. And Stephen Colbert said, uh, he said, a lot of people hate me. And he goes, and I know that. And and then what I've had to come to grips with is the fact that it's not for them. Mm. What I do is not for the people who hate it. It is for the people who get something out of it. And that's who I'm working for. Yeah. And and that's how I feel about the new one and my girlfriend's boyfriend and think of her jokes. It's like, no, no, this is for, I mean. Thank God for jokes. I got an email the other day from someone from France who thanked me for um, acknowledging the Charlie Hebdo incident in the Thank God for Jokes in the final monologue. Yeah, and it was a really heartfelt email, and and it, it it's affirmations like that where it's a little more thought through and conceived as as a piece of correspondence than like a Reddit thread. Yeah, let's say, and. And I go, okay, well, as long as I'm connecting with this intelligent person who has a, a, a clearly formed thought about this, then that's who it's for, to use the words of Stephen Colbert, that's who it's for.
1: Mike Berbiglia is on Twitter, at berbigs His specials and albums are in all the internet places. After our interview was done, his brother Joe picked him up outside the Marketplace studios. On our next episode, Stephen Page, formerly of Bare Naked Ladies, was due on set to shoot a music video. One problem, he literally couldn't get out of bed.
0: I could move my fingers, but it felt like physical paralysis. Mixed with this thick fog over my body and brain, almost like I wasn't there. my, My then wife called one of my best friends to come over and basically pull me out of bed, get me dressed, and drive me to this video shoot, where I then put the mask on and perform my
1: task. The Hilarious World of Depression is a production of American Public Media. The production team for this episode includes Chrissy Pease, Christina Lopez, Phyllis Fletcher, Sarah Brugger and John Miller. Our theme song was written and performed by Rhett Miller. If you need help, confidential help is available. Text the word HOME to 741-741 for the crisis text line or call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. They're free 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. The hilarious world of depression is supported by Health Partners and MakeItOkay.org. Make It Okay is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illnesses. MakeItOkay.org has information that can help you and your loved ones. Starting that conversation can be awkward, but Make It Okay has tips on what to say and what not to say. Stories of hope from people who have been there. You can take the pledge to make it okay at MakeItOkay.org. HilariousWorld.org is our web home. We're also on Twitter. And come visit us on Facebook. Just search for the name of the show or search for Thwadballs. I'm John Moe. Bye now. What if I was to tell you I'm payachi? This great big smile is just for show. Sure. just grease paint would you say i'm a hopeless case say it ain't so would you say i'm a sad clown tell me something i don't know would you say i'm a sad clown tell me something i don't know